theyeshiva.net. Okay, good morning, everybody. And thank you for coming and gracing us with your presence. If you didn't take a chumash, please take a chumash on the back table, the blue chumashim. Parshas B'Shalach. So today's class is dedicated by Menachem Abrams in memory of his grandparents and great-grandparents. May they all have an aliyah and remain sources of light and blessing and inspiration to you and the whole family. For all the bracha v'hatzlacha, ad dai, thank you. There's a very famous expression in Chazal. The Gemara says it in the beginning of Tractate Saita, and it's in other sources as well, comparing Zivugim to Kriyas Yamsuf, comparing marriages to the splitting of the sea. In fact, it says, Kasha Zivugim to Kriyas Yamsuf, the challenge, the difficulty or the challenge of relationships of Zivugim. Zivugim are the matches, relationships, the challenge of it is Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea. At the surface, it seems like to be saying, you know, the splitting of the sea was a big feat. <laughs> you can't just expect to stand at a sea and it splits for you. That's why humanity developed different items, different materials, methods to be able to travel, to take a voyage through seas, rivers, lakes, and oceans. Already from time immemorial. Because we don't expect to stand in front of a sea, Kriyas Yamsuf. So it would seem like to say, you know, that marriages come with their own challenges. It's, it's Kriyas Yamsuf. But sometimes it could seem like a very pessimistic statement, really. So does every marriage, basically, is every marriage destined to a lack of success unless there's Kriyas Yamsuf? It's like, who's creating this Kriyas Yamsuf? Is there somebody with a stick <laughs> who's going to strike on the water? And boom, the water parts. The Gemara does make a difference between first marriages, second marriages, yet in other places, all marriages are considered like Kriyas Yamsuf. And why did the Chazal use this miracle? I mean, there were many great things that happened. Could have said, like the exodus of Egypt, like uh, the man falling every morning, like the clouds of glory. I mean, there were so many, the Be'erish Miriam, there was the rolling stone, uh, the well of Miriam, there were so many miraculous things. Why did they choose to compare marriage to Kriyas Yamsuf? Obviously, there's something in Kriyas Yamsuf and the splitting of the sea that is thematically connected to a relationship. And was the point just to discourage people? Like, if your marriage works, it's a miracle. It's like Kriyas Yamsuf. It reminds me of a very interesting story. There's a Jew I know. He was many, many years a professor in uh, Stern College. You know, Stern College, Shiva University section for women. And he was a professor there, I believe, of, of, of Jewish philosophy and Jewish ethics and some other subjects. His name is Professor Alter Bensian Metzger. Reb Alter Metz, Dr. Metzger. And he once shared with me this story. He said he was already an older bocher, and he wanted a shidduch. He wanted a shidduch. So uh, he told me there was one Erevim Kipper, the Lubavitcher Rebbe used to, he was a YU boy. He was, I believe, a student in Yeshiva Sabinus Kalchanan. I think he wrote his doctorate on... Uh, translating Rav Cook's work on Shuvah into English, very intellectual and wise and also spiritual, a very kind person. So uh, on Erev Yom Kippur, the day before the Lubavitcher Rebbe had a custom, he would stand by his room and distribute lekach in the afternoon after Mincha, 
Whoever wanted to come and get a piece of honey cake, and he would wish them a sweet year, a Shana Tevom Sukkah. It was a very, very long line, but it took everybody, you know, it was very, very fast, but thousands of people would go, and he would give everybody a piece of lekach, a piece of honey cake, and a bracha for Shana Tevom Sukkah. And then later he did it again, Hashanah Rabbah, for those who came in for Sukkah, a lot of guests. So uh, Dr. Metzger told me he was a YU boy, and he was an older bacher, maybe he was already graduated, and he wanted to have a blessing for a shidduch. But he felt uncomfortable. There were people standing there, you know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's secretaries and Gabayim. He didn't feel comfortable to say in front of everybody uh, that, uh, you know, I need a shidduch, I need a girl, I'm desperate, I'm older, whatever. He told this to me. So he said, when he came by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he says, he gives him a piece of luggage, he says, Ich bet yamsuf. <laughs> I'm asking a blessing for Kriyas Yamsuf, for the splitting of the sea. So he told me the Rebbe said, Ki Kriyas Yamsuf. Ki Kriyas Yamsuf. That's what he said. In other words, the Gemara says, he said, I want a bracha for Kriyas Yamsuf. The Rebbe said, Ki Kriyas Yamsuf. The Gemara says, Kasha Zivugim Ki Kriyam. It's like Kriyas Yamsuf. He said, I want a bracha for Kriyas Yamsuf. He said, like Kriyas Yamsuf. I said, that was it? He said, that was it. I said, what was the point? He said, he wanted to correct me. I said, how long after did you get engaged? He said, a few months later. I said, no, that was the bracha. <laughs> you were saying it's Kriyas Yamsuf. He said, relax, it's Kriyas Yamsuf. <laughs> he married uh, the daughter of the chief rabbi of Mexico, Rev Hirschberg. I don't know if you know Rev, Rev, Rev Hirschberg was the chief rabbi of Mexico. He was a student of Yeshivas Chachme Lublin. He was known to know Talmud Yerushalmi by heart. Anyway, he married his daughter, Rebbe Metzger. So that was a few months later. <laughs> Kriyas Yamsuf. But the question here is whether Kriyas Yamsuf or Kriyas Yamsuf. I never realized that he was just trying to correct you. That was the bracha. It's Kikriyas Yamsuf. Let's, uh, let's make it a little easier. But what is, really the, what is really the thematic connection? Why did they use this, this term? So different commentators give different perspectives. A lot of interesting different perspectives. There's one on a very simple level. <laughs> they used to say it in the world of the yeshivas. And that is... It says, the uh, Taisvah Springs in Saita that the Jews actually, they didn't cross the Red Sea from one side to the other side. They actually crossed it in a semicircle, which means, it's very interesting, from the same side they went in, the same side they went out. They just made, it was like a long, a long, it's like you're getting to the same destination, you're going back to the same place, but they did it through the sea. So instead of going straight from one side to the other side, they did like a semicircle and they came around. Now it says that they went right in 12 pathways, for each tribe had its pathway. So that means the ones that had a pathway right in the beginning, their journey was very short. And the ones who went to the end, right, they had to go much longer. It says, everybody has to go through their journey, you know. This one finds the person, first time, second time, third time they found another person. So that's, you know, that's on maybe a little humorous or a more simple level. But I want to today explore this a little deeper. Why did the Chazal feel strongly about this comparison? In order to understand this, let's focus on another detail which seems, uh, which also seems strange. We all know the Dayenus. Day, Dayenu, Day, Dayenu. It's the time when you already want to go to sleep. So the Dayenu, which is supposed to wake everybody up in order to prepare them for Shulchan Eirech, is a very interesting list of basically saying dayenu. Dayenu means it's enough. 
Die. Enough. Dayenu. So we say, for example, right, Ilu haitziyanu mimitzrayim v'layasa v'hem shvatim, dayenu. If Hashem would have just taken us out of Egypt and not make all the miracles, dayenu would have been enough. Ilu kervanu lifnei harsinai v'layasam lanu v'satayre, dayenu. He goes through the 15 dayenus, and the real point of it is, or part of the point is, that when a lot of things happen to really be able to focus on the gratitude of each individual gift that we have in life and say, wow, this is Dayenu. Sometimes when a lot of things are happening, you know, right, Abzushavanapali, he didn't have money, and they said he was a child, he would often starve. And they once saw him outside, he said, Rebbeinu, he was hungry, he said, Rebbeinu Shalom, thank you for giving me an appetite. <laughs> he was thankful for the fact that he had an appetite. So there's a person that's making a bar mitzvah, making a sheva brach, making a, and there's always the things that are imperfect, right? Because the caterer is never perfect. Besides your caterer maybe, but it's never perfect. Yeah, the napkins were supposed to be blue, they ended up to be red. The forks are on the left side, they have to be on the right side. And those are the small stuff. Then they're sweating the bigger stuff. But a person also has to be able to say, wow, but I'm celebrating a bar mitzvah, I'm celebrating a sheva brach. So that's the idea of dayenu. One of the Dayenus, though, seems very strange. Ilu kara lanu es hayam, dayenu. If he would have split the sea, but not taken us through the sea in dry land, cherava means dry, if he would have split the sea, but we wouldn't pass through the sea in dry land, dayenu. It seems strange. What do you mean? The Egyptians were pursuing the Jewish people. <laughs> they were stuck between a rock and a hardball. The sea in front of them, the Egyptians behind them. So if Hashem would have split the sea, and we wouldn't have passed by, we wouldn't have gone through the sea, we wouldn't have parted, if he would have parted the sea, but he wouldn't have taken us through in dry land, Dayenu, what would be the point? <laughs> the sea splits, we're standing here, the Egyptians could still take us back. The whole point of Kriyas Yamsev was to go through. It's a very strange thing. So the Avudraham, Rabbeinu David Avudraham in his commentary says the word is Becherava. God could have taken us through, but it would have been muddy. It wouldn't have been dry. The sea would split, but the, 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 the bedrock, the bottom of it, would be water-like. It would be earth and water. It would be very muddy. So that's what we say. It wouldn't have been like a walk, like a hike through dry land. It would be like a hike when you're going through swamps and you're going through muddy earth. It's a different type of hike. You need the right shoes for it or you got to be barefoot for it. So that was the Dayenu. Even if the journey through the sea would have not been completely, we would have gotten through, but it would have been a muddy, dirty, filthy walk. Dayenu, we were saved. But now it wasn't only you parted the sea and we walked through, it was completely dry. But it's very strange because how does that compare with the miracle itself? All the other things that we're thanking for are monumental. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Makos, Kriyas Yamsov, Matan going into Eretz and then there's one Dayenu, you know what? My shoes didn't get muddy. Okay. Imagine somebody and their family. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. It didn't happen often. But if somebody and their family was liberated from Auschwitz or Bergen, or Bergen-Belsen, 
1945. And every year they make a special feast of gratitude. But there's a special feast, special gratitude, that when I left the gates of Auschwitz, the earth was dry, there was no snow. Okay, <laughs> how does that compare? And that's what we're emphasizing. We're mentioning the fact it was dry. It was a comfortable hike. That detail gets a special dayenu. Does that really compare with the other ones? Now, I want you to open your Chumash, and I want to focus on one Pasuk. If you have these blue Chumashim, Pasha's Beshalach, it's page 191. On top it should say Beshalach, it's Shmois, Perik Yud Dalit, Exodus chapter 14, and... We are looking at Pasik Yud Gimel, Vayoyme Moshe. What's the background? The background is the Jews, Jews left Egypt on the 15th of Nisan. The seventh day later, they wake up to a nightmare. Suddenly they see Parai is back. The worst nightmare. They thought they were emancipated. It's like in the nightmares, in the dreams. You know, you thought you got away from the enemy, and suddenly he's right there. Parai is there with his troops with his chariots, a skilled professional army right behind the Jewish people. They are literally stuck between the sea and the Egyptians, and they start screaming. And they tell Moshe very, very scathing words. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to take us out to die in the desert? Why did you do this to us? If the purpose was to die, we could have died there, and there's a cemetery, cemeteries there. And they came back to Moshe and they reminded him what happened the first time. We told you, leave us alone, let us remain slaves. Better to live as a slave than to die as a free human being. So they tell Moshe, we told you, leave us alone, leave us alone. This whole drama that you created that we're going to become a free people, it's now coming back to haunt us and to bite us. These are scathing words. They are basically in absolute despair. And we can understand. Pari is right there with his troops. There's a sea here. You're talking about people, 600,000 men between 20 and 60, but you have an equal amount of women and children and infants and babies and elderly people, senior citizens. What exactly are they supposed to do? Start swimming through a sea? Let's hear what Moshe says. Moshe speaks to the nation and he says, Don't be scared. Stay here. Stand. Stand. And watch the salvation of Hashem, which we will do today. You see Egypt today, you will never see them again. Hashem shall fight for you and you remain silent. This is a pretty wordy response. Moshe could have just said, Don't be scared. God will do the rest. God will combat. Just stay put. It will all be good. Moshe says lots of words here, a lot of details. Chazal are always sensitive to nuance. So in the Mechilta, which is the Medrash on Parshish, on Sefer Shmois, and the Talmud Yerushalmi, Mesechistainis, and in Yonis and Benazil, and Targum Yerushalmi, our sages teach us that the Jewish people split up into four groups. Four different parties. Arba Kitois. And each one said something else. In other words, when they attacked Moshe, and they said, what did you do to us? Why did you bring us here? The four different philosophies developed at the time. 
four different parties. Each one was screaming and advocating for another solution. One group said, Nipoil layam. Suicide. Let's jump into the sea. Let's jump in. Better to die as free people than to surrender and live as permanent slaves. Who knows the abuse and the torture we're going to experience at the hand of the Egyptians when they take us back. Who knows how much worse this exile is going to become. Let's just end it. Let's all together jump into the sea. Later this would be reflected in the story of Mitzada. That was group number one. Group number two said, Let's just go back. Lift, pick up the, uh, raise the white flag, surrender, and say, you know what? We're yours. Yes, we will be slaves. We will be subjugated once again. We will be oppressed. At least we'll be alive. We'll be alive. I want to be alive as a slave. That was group number two. Group number three said, let's fight. We may lose, but at least we'll go down fighting. And you know what? We'll take down a few Egyptians with us. Later this would be the philosophy behind the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. In April 1943, Mordechai and by the way, they just discovered his bunker, Milo, Milo, Rechov, where is it? Milo Gas, I think 17, because the Warsaw Ghetto was completely destroyed by the Nazis. They left no memory of it. If you go there, you could see there's nothing. You don't see anything. But they discovered his bunker and they found their tefillin. Mamash, a few months ago. In any case, what was their philosophy? They knew they're not going to defeat the Nazi war machine in April 1943. But we're not just going to go to the death camps. We'll fight. We'll fight as long as we can, and we'll take down a few Germans with us. And that's what they did. This was the third philosophy. Let's fight the Egyptians with whatever we have. We don't have grenades. We'll use rocks. And then there was a fourth philosophy. The fourth group said, Netzavach Kenegdon. Let's scream against them. What does that mean? Some commentators say it means, let's just scream. Maybe they'll become confused. There's nothing we can do. We can't fight. It's worthless. Let's scream. Who knows? Maybe they'll get scared. Another explanation in the commentaries is, let's daven. Netzavach, let's scream to Hashem. He runs this world. Let's pray. Let him take care of us. Hashem can do what he wants. If he wants to save us, he'll save us. In other words, it was not one group that screamed at Moshe and said, we should have stayed in Egypt. There were four different groups with four different approaches. How did the Chazal know this? doesn't say it in the Pasuk. Because they analyzed Moshe's response. And when you look at Moshe's response, you could see immediately he's not saying one thing. He's saying four things. That's why these two psukim are so wordy and long and elaborate, because he wasn't speaking to one group. He was speaking to four groups. He just put it into one speech. Take a look at his words again, and you will see each sentence is addressing another section of the Jewish people. Take a look. You stay in one place. Hisyatzvu means stay, stand, don't move. This was the group that said, let's advance right into the sea. Let's jump into the water. Let's take our lives. Moshe said, don't be scared. Stay put. Group number one. Group number one, two. 
You see Egypt today. You're never going back there again. You're not going to see them again. Which group was he addressing? The second group that said, let's go back to Mitzrayim. Let's just return. Let's say, you know what? Let's rewind the tape recorder. Forget redemption. We're going back to be slaves. You're never going back. Group number three. Let's fight. Let's fight. Let's take up arms and we'll do whatever we can. Hashem yilachem lachem. The Rebbeinah Shalom will combat for you. Group number four. Let's daven. Let's scream. Let's pray. Shh. You be quiet. Even that was rejected at the moment. Even that. So it's interesting. There were no five groups. There were four groups. That means all of Kalal Yisrael developed four different philosophies. Not five, not six, not seven, four. Because those four philosophies captured, you know, Jews have good minds and we're very diverse. Three Jews, 19 opinions. One Jew, four opinions. Within, depends on the hour. And yet there were four opinions, not more, not less. Those four captured all the different alternatives. Jump into the sea, suicide, go back to Egypt, fight Egypt, and pray. Let Hashem do the work. We can't do anything. What is the meaning behind these four? Why were there no five ideas? Why the, well, you say there's no more ideas? <laughs> these are the only ideas. What else is he supposed to do? <laughs> Get into a spaceship and go to the moon? That wasn't an option. Nobody was offering that to them. So these are really the only options. Either we stay put and we daven, or we surrender, or we combat, or we take our lives. There's no other solution. So it's fascinating that four different groups ended up with four different philosophies, and yet all of them were rejected. So what was what are they supposed to do? So the next Pasuk says, Vayoyma Hashem al why are you screaming? Why are you screaming to me? Talk to the Jewish people and let them travel. <laughs> wow, why did nobody else come up with this? The answer is because there's a sea. I can't travel. I'd love to travel. <laughs> Where am I supposed to go to? And then he tells him, and you lift up your stick and stretch out your, your hand on the sea, and split it. So Jewish people will come into the yam. What exactly happened here? What are our sages telling us? So we discussed Shaduchim being Kikrias Yamsuf. We discussed the special Dayenu that I went through the sea in luxury. It was a five-star hotel. It was a Ritz-Carlton. It wasn't Motel 6. I could have gone through the sea and gotten a little mud on my new shoes. Imagine. Could have gotten out of the death camps with mud. But I went through a sea that was mamish as clean as my dining room floor. Your dining room floor. And my wife's dining room floor. And finally, 
What are these four groups that the Jewish people split up into? And yet Moshe Rabbeinu rejected all of them. Before we get to it, I want to raise one more fundamental question. And that is, almost all the commentators point out that Kriyas Yamsov was simply an unnecessary miracle. As the Evan Ezra says, everybody journeys from Egypt to Israel and nobody has to go through the Red Sea. <laughs> it's not part of the voyage. In fact, if you read Sefer Bereshis, there's constantly people going from Egypt to Canaan, Egypt to Canaan. Avram and Sarah go down to Egypt and they come back. Yosef goes down to Egypt. Yaakov and his children go down to Egypt. The brothers go back to Egypt, back to Canaan, back to Egypt, back to Canaan, back to Egypt. Nobody had to go through a Red Sea. <laughs> and that is, if you know the map, the journey from Egypt to Canaan does not go through the Yamsuf. And even if God wants to take them, not straight up, because he was afraid they're going to encounter the Philistines, Devonet says, even if you're going towards the Sinai Peninsula, the Sinai Desert, you don't have to cross the Red Sea. I understand miracles that happen out of necessity. The Jews are stuck. They have nowhere to go. So God might, but this seemed like a superfluous miracle. Why? There's the famous expression, you don't change nature in vain. The laws of nature are fixed. It's part of the fabric of creation. And in many ways, the Iran says there's a sacredness to nature because it's a respect for the fabric of the universe. So there were miracles, but they were necessary. They were essential. They were intrinsic. This was literally not intrinsic. The Ebenezer asks this question, and he says, I know that there's no Yamsuf, there's no Red Sea between Mitzrayim and Eretz Yisrael. Nobody had to go through it. So he answers, you're right, it was concocted just to drown the Egyptians. You're right, they didn't have to go through it. In other words, it was a whole miracle done. But then the Mepharshim asked a simple question. He could have done just like Marcus Pcheris, just like Marcus Pcheris didn't have to go through the Red Sea. Why did it have to happen through this huge miracle of splitting the sea? Marcus Pcheris, the night before they left, was a plague, a pandemic, whatever it looked like, and the firstborns died. He could have done this exactly the same thing. And then, as I said earlier, Toysvis writes in Maseches Erkendav Tasvav that the Jewish people went out of the sea from the same side that they went in. So it was basically a semicircle of 180 degrees. So they came in this way, they made a circle, and they went out. That's basically what happened. So the question is, what was the point of it? What, what, why was it so necessary? And not only that, there's a halacha, just like we mention Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim every day, the Taisefta says in Brachas, we also mention Kriyas Yamsef every day. In fact, in Pesukah Dezimu, we go through the whole story every day. And we even sing the song, Az Yashir and Shachris. And then later, after Kriyashma and the blessing, Ezra Savaysenu, there's a whole section before Shemun Esther where we mention every day the story of the splitting of the sea. So it's not just a story that happened. It's part of the collective memory of the Jewish people that has to be discussed and meditated every day somehow. There's an essential story here. The explanation to all of this is that Kriyas Yamsov, the splitting of the sea, embodied and created a paradigm shift in the history of humanity and the consciousness of the Jewish people. 
What is the difference between dry land and water? The difference is, when we look at dry land, when we're living here in dry land, we right away see diversity. I am I, you are you. Here there's a stender, here there's a computer, here there's a phone, here there's a tissue box, here there's a chair. When you look at the world in dry land by Abasha, you immediately see differentiation. When I look at the yam, when I look at the sea, the famous expression, kamayim layam echasim, the waterbed covers everything. And even though we know that under the water, there's a very rich and diverse world. In fact, the Gemara says, in Chulin kol mashiyash bayam, yash bayabasha, v'chol mashiyash bayabasha, yash bayam. What is in dry land has its parallel in the sea, and what is in the sea has its parallel in the dry land. When you look at the sea, you see a oneness that unites everything. Yes, if I go down, I could see the tremendous, intricate diversity of marine life, of water life. But from the outside, what the first view, the first perspective is, there's the water that encompasses all, and they're all submerged in the water, and they're invisible. They're invisible. In fact, if you tell a fish, the famous metaphor of Rabbi Akiva, come out of the water, I want to see your beautiful face. Hyrenius, Marax, I want to take a picture. The fish says, Tumenish Kenetivus. I want to be invisible. The moment I become visible, you could call the Hevra Kadisha. I want to be submerged in the water. I don't want to be visible. <laughs> First of all, if I'm visible, the fishermen can take me. But generally, if I'm too visible, if I'm really conspicuous, it means it's the end, it's not the beginning. With creatures on dry land, it's the exact opposite. When do we become invisible? After 120 years. When a person is put into the earth, that's when they become invisible. We begin in the womb of the mother, invisible. But we don't want to stay there. And you don't want them to stay there. You want them to grow up at some point, right? A little bit, no? They emerge, visibility. The definition of a human being is, I'm here. And as you grow up, you become independent. And you're visible. In fact, in the world of psychology, being invisible is a painful reality. Sometimes people will tell you, in my youth, I was invisible. Nobody saw me. Nobody noticed me. I was like a fish on the water. We don't want to hear from the peanut gallery. Stay invisible. When a person passes away, they become swallowed up by the earth again invisible. So let's understand what for a fish spells life, for a human being or a mammal spells death. If we were to become invisible in our source of life, in the earth, because we all live from the earth, it means it's burial. And for what a person or a mammal spells life, for a fish spells death. What does this mean on a spiritual level? The answer is, it's two perspectives on reality. Water represents the Navi Yeshaya, speaking about Mashiach. Yeshaya Perik Yudalov, the Aftar Vachar Pesach says, Lo Yereyu Velo Yashchisu Bechol Arkachi, Ki Molo Ha'aretz Deyes Hashem, Kamayim Layam Mechasim. To describe the time of Geula is, the whole world will be filled with divine awareness, like the water covers the sea. What's the comparison? He doesn't just mean, just like the water covers the sea, you don't see anything else but the water. You don't see 
the earth, you don't see anything inside, all you see is water, the whole world will be filled with divine knowledge. But the comparison is much deeper than that. Yam represents a world in which there's a lot of diversity, but all you see is oneness. Shema Yisrael Hashem Olekeinu Hashem Echad means that godliness is one. Not just Hashem is one, but that the world is one. Because it's all a manifestation of divine oneness. So in the philosophy of Yamsuf, in the creatures of the sea, the perspective of the world of Yamsuf is a perspective in which, even though there's so much differentiation and diversity, but the diversity is superficial. Superficial, not that it doesn't exist, but in the sense that there's an underlying, there's a waterbed that encompasses us all. In other words, you see that everything is part of one source. So there's a harmony in the universe. We're all interconnected with each other. We are all interlocked. We are all givers and takers. We are all part of a mosaic, of a tapestry. There is a symphony of oneness and everyone is an indispensable note in the cosmic symphony. In fact, the way the fish exists is, I don't want to be visible as a separate being. I want to be in the water. What does that mean spiritually, psychologically? When a person is completely aware of their source of life, so they don't need a counterfeit ego to be able to be visible as a separate being. On the contrary, I am submerged in my source of life and that's how I am alive. That's when a person recognizes that at the core of their being they are really divine energy, ain't saif. And therefore... I am a manifestation of that. The ego, which stands for easing God out, is when I feel separate and I have to create a counterfeit identity because I'm not in touch with the true oneness that I am part of. So I have to create a substitute reality to numb the pain of my separateness, the burden of self-consciousness. How do you know your body is healthy when you don't feel it, when it's not visible? Visible in the sense, it's not screaming. You would think, if you have a healthy body, you should feel it. When you start feeling your head, what does it mean? You got a migraine. When you start feeling your pinky, there's a scratch. When I start feeling any part of my body, it's because it's not in sync. Even when I'm lethargic and heavy and I start feeling myself, it's because... There's a lack of seamless flow between the soul and the body. A person is in good shape and exercises after a good workout, you feel a lightness. A healthy body is a body that's not feeling itself. Why? Because it's completely in touch with the source of life. Spiritually too, when I walk into a room and I'm very self-conscious, I'm feeling me and I'm talking, where am I? And I want to place myself here, I want to place myself there. It's because I have a, a, a challenge to be able to integrate with the heartbeat of life, to dance to the rhythm. There's a sense of insecurity and separateness that I have to compensate for. So the invisibility of the fish spiritually represents that my eye, when it's fully intact, when it's fully connected to the source, doesn't have to stand out. Therefore, I don't have to be confrontational or insecure because the eye is a manifestation, a continuum of the divine eye. But in dry land, intuitively, we don't see that world. We see a world of differentiation. I am I, you are you. I don't immediately, intuitively sense our oneness, our connectivity, the fact that we're all from one source. So he says, Malahar, it's there, Hashem, Kamayim layam 
there's an expression in Svarim that everything in the world really has a koya chapoyel benifel. The word teva comes from the word tubu v'yamsuf. How do you say drowning in, in Hebrew? Tviah, litboa. We say in the shira, tubu v'yamsuf. What's the connection with teva? The answer is when you see teva, I don't see the divine energy that's vivifying and animating nature. At the surface, I just see a physical universe. Because the kaya chapayel benifel is the energy of Hashem that is embedded in every single creature, in every heartbeat, and in DNA, and every flake of snow and drop of water. It's embedded, it's hidden, like under the water. It's hidden inside the teva, but the teva is tubu v'yamsuf. When someone chas v'shalom goes into the sea, drowned, you don't see them anymore. So the kaya chapayel benifel, the divine energy, is tubu. It's embedded inside, but I, I may not be able to see it in a person themselves. I may look at myself and I don't see my glory, my holiness, my sacredness, my infinity, my oneness right now with Hashem. I don't feel it. That's the difference between the dry land perspective and the sea perspective. The sea perspective, you look at the water, all you see is oneness. I look at the world and I see achdus, echad. Everything is a manifestation of echad. I look at myself and I see the harmony. I look at another person and I can sense the harmony. Because the truth is everything is a manifestation of the kaya chapal benifel. But the way we look at it, we call it nature. What does nature mean? Nature just means, yeah, you say the laws of nature. As somebody once said that uh, nature is... God's way of performing miracles and remaining anonymous. Right? Somebody once said, the best feeling in the world is to do something anonymously and then have somebody find out. Right? But, but, but in a very positive sense, the idea is to look through the teva, to be able to pierce through, to be able to see that which is, it shouldn't be drowning, to be able to, to elevate it, to reveal it. That's what it means. It says in Perkeyavis, if you say something in the name of the one who said it, you redeem the world. Don't plagiarize. Say who said it. So it has a literal meaning, right? You should quote people. You shouldn't ta- I shouldn't take credit for, something, for what somebody else said. It's deceptive, but there's also a deeper meaning. In Hebrew, there's two words that are the same, but they mean different things. The davar, davar in Hebrew means a word and a thing. Dibur, davar. In English, there's words and there's things. In, in Hebrew, it's the same word. Davar is a thing. But davar also means like dvar Hashem, vayidaber, it means speech. Why? The answer is, because in Judaism, in Hebrew, the, the language of creation, everything is really a word. Everything is the word of Hashem that's creating it. The world is made up of words. Things are not things, they're words. If you'll ask, what's a person? You'll say, a person is a person. No, a person is words, DNA. What's DNA? Every one of your 50 trillion cells has a double copy of your genome. In your genome, you have a DNA, which scientists compare to a computer program, which is basically made up of letters. A back-end computer program is made up of letters. Even though here it's chemicals, but they call it letters because it's basically a program based on sequence of DNA, and if the sequence is chas v'sholem off, it can be catastrophic. 
for the human body, because the human body is built by the direction of the DNA. It's like a blueprint. It's literally a code. And you know, if you could stretch out the DNA like a scroll that would be audible, right? It would go from here to the moon and back. And that's in one cell of your body. So Basara, when you look in Chumash, how is the world is described as God's words? It's words. That's what it is. So Davar is Dibur. We say every morning, Baruch Sha'amar, Hashem spoke and the world came into existence. The real world is words. There was a very big theoretical physicist. His name was Max Planck. He won a Nobel Prize. He once said, we used to think consciousness is a derivative of matter. Today we know that matter is a derivative of consciousness. So when you think about that, what it really means is the world is consciousness. Baruch Sha'omar If you have the right instruments, you can see the world is consciousness. It's Koyach Apoyel Benifal. It's divine energy and consciousness behind everything. So every Davar is a Dibur. If you identify in every Davar and everything, Shem Oimrai, the one who said it, you redeem the world. The word oil, the word oilam means concealment. Oilam comes from the word helam. You redeem, you liberate the world from its concealment because you identify in every davar and everything the shame oimrei, the one who speaks it into existence. In other words, instead of the Kayach the divine energy remaining hidden, embedded, and drowned, Teva, like the Chacham Tzvi writes, nature is basically miracles that happen too frequently. That's what it is. Einstein once said you could live life in two ways. Either nothing is a miracle, or everything is a miracle. The idea of Birchus HaShachar, of waking up in the morning and blessing, is the idea that everything is a miracle. Dayenu. Wow, I'm breathing. Dayenu. I could even stand up. Wow, extra credit. <laughs> I can get dressed. Dayenu. That's the Dayenu. Oh. So now let's take it to a person's internal life. A person is stuck between a rock and a hard ball. Egyptians are behind me, a sea is in front of me, I'm stuck. What do you do in a situation of danger? Physical danger, emotional danger, psychological danger, social, spiritual danger. So 2,000 years ago, Chazal said there were four groups, four responses. Today, in neuroscience, we know that 2,000 years ago, they were onto something because there are basically four reactions that the brain, the amygdala, experiences in the face of real challenge, real danger. They're known as the four F's. Flight, fight, form, freeze. To simplify, one approaches flight. Run, run, run. And literally, the brain tells the body to gear up and to prepare that it should be able to, to run. All those mechanisms that will help running, it's what happens. The muscles, everything tightens up in a way they should be able to run. Another response is fight. Fight. And the brain has to make that decision in a moment. 
the reptilian brain, they call it the amygdala, survival, it's responsible for survival. What's the right option? Fight. I'm going to fight you. And the body gears up for that. That's another response. There's a third response. And that's the response of freeze. I can't fight. I can't even run. I just freeze. You have it in the jungles. Sometimes a zebra or an antelope is being chased by a lioness, right? She can't fight. <laughs> she can't run. They sometimes freeze. It's freeze. Personosa, you just freeze. You become literally emotionally paralyzed, immobile. And then there's a fourth approach, a fourth response. It's called fawn, F-A-W-N, which in very simple terms means I become a people's pleaser. It often happens children who grow up in homes of narcissistic parents or a parent or very abusive homes, and they know that if they want to survive, you just make sure to follow orders and not get Tati too crazy or Mommy too crazy, and that's it's a survival mechanism. So as they grow up, they always look to what the people expect them to do, and they live up to their expectations. And this could become a real, real, real source of brokenness, because at some point I don't even, I don't even know what I feel. I don't even know who I am. Because my survival mechanism has been evaluate the crowd, see what's the right thing to do. You almost start copying people. Literally like a monkey, like in a circus, you start, I start emulating people. I even start emulating their emotions, their responses, because I know if I want to survive, I have to fit in. I cannot have my own identity. I don't even know about it. Now, these four responses are healthy responses of a healthy body. Where does it become a tragedy? It becomes a tragedy when I don't know how to shut off these responses. In other words, they continue to operate and dictate my life, even in situations when it's unnecessary. I once heard from Dr. Bessel van der Kolk when I interviewed him. The author of The Body Keeps the Score, he says a PTS, a Vietnam soldier came to see him, a, 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 a veteran. And he was there with his wife, and wife said, I just can't be married to the person. What happened was July 4th, right? She couldn't understand. And they were walking. They had a beautiful evening. They went out to a restaurant. I think they were walking home. And there were fireworks, July 4th. And he heard the fireworks. And I think he saw some of them. And suddenly, he started to holler. And they were in the street. And he went under one of the cars. And he schlepped her under the car with him. And, and, and he was just, he was freaking out. And, and she thought her husband is just, you know, He's a dangerous man. He basically went back to Vietnam. He was, he was in Vietnam and his brain told him, this is what you have to do right now. Right? Post-traumatic stress disorder, he was right back there. It, it was inc- incredible. And it wasn't even a choice. It wasn't even a choice. The, 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 the brain has become so conditioned to it that anything that reminded him of, of that situation, and he didn't have the ability to differentiate, this was the best thing he can do. Now imagine in situations where a child has to respond in a certain way to certain situations, anything that might trigger that reality, they will go right into that place. So you'll have marriages where people are constantly responding with fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. One approach is, I'm going to fight. <laughs> I didn't say anything, I just asked you. This person is fine, they lost it, they're angry, they're aggressive, they're confrontational. 
It has nothing to do with what happened now. In this person's mind, a lion just came into the room. If a lion came into the room, I'm not going to meditate, sorry. And I'm not going to smile. And when you start running to the door or fighting, and Rabbi Waiwai says, guys, let's relax, close your eyes, take a deep breath, we're going to do some vooing, we're going to get the vagus nerve to expand. You say, whoa, 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 I'm out. Why? Because there's a lion in the room. Now, if in my mind there's a lion in the room, I have no choice. I have to fight or flight. Sometimes I just freeze. That's the trauma face. You look at a person, they're not here. They just shut down. Maybe for two weeks, they shut down. It's very, very intense. It's very intense. And instead of asking them what's wrong with you, you have to really ask what happened to you. And then there's fawn. Fawn means I just avoid all confrontation and I just make a perfect situation where we're pleasing everybody, but ultimately there's no self whatsoever. These four responses essentially are four mechanisms of God embedded in the brain to deal with very difficult situations. But what happens if there was a fire in the house or a little smoke by Havdullah and the fire alarm went on? And you know what the fire alarm sounds like in Muncie, right? But usually after 20 minutes when we realize everybody's safe, what do we do? We put in the numbers and we shut off the fire alarm. What happens if nobody shut off the fire alarm of this four-year-old boy? Or four-year-old girl. Nobody shut off the fire alarm. Maybe because they don't feel the danger is gone. Or there was nobody to protect them or make them feel safe or seen or soothed or secure. So what happens? 20, 30, 40 years later, there's a fire alarm. You know what it is to live with a fire alarm 24 hours a day? Huh? You know what those fire alarms sound like? Or maybe if it's not on 24 hours, but it goes on every day, it gets triggered, and the fire alarm is here, and I'm like, oh, and gee. <laughs> and sometimes you have a parent, they're talking to a child, the child says something, the teenage says something, their fire alarm gets triggered. It's not an adult talking to a child, it's a child responding to a child. It's a four-year-old victim responding to another four-year-old. Actually, my child is 11. I am four. So it's a four-year-old mommy or tati responding to an 11-year-old. You know what that looks like. A teacher is sitting in a classroom. A student says something. Chutzpah I lose it. I'm the teacher. I'm triggered. I'm like, no chutzpah in my class. You're expelled for nine years. I once heard a father tell his son, that's it, I'm not making a bar mitzvah for you. I'm like, wow, that was smart. I'm not making a bar mitzvah for you. But you know why? The father wasn't 13. At that moment, the father was six and a half. I get it. It's not even judgment, it's awareness, being aware. If I'm a teacher and you're triggering me as a student and I am anxious and angry, there's no way I could respond to you from my prefrontal cortex. For my prefrontal lobes, I'm responding from my amygdala. I either fight or flight or fawn or freeze. My response is completely impulsive based on my own survival skill. I need to survive. Only if I could become aware of this process and I have a way of acknowledging it and with compassion, then I could make a choice to respond to you, my child, my student, my friend, my spouse from a different space from a much more expansive space. So this is where the four responses on one hand are amazing, 
Because you know why? If there's a lion in the room, fight or flight is the right option. I would choose flight. Unless you're Shimshon HaGibber, then choose fight. But what if these lions are not lions? But in my mind, (laughs) they're all over the place all the time because of my particular experiences or stories. So come back and see how 2,000 years ago the Chazal spoke about this. Look at these four responses. It's literally these four responses. Jump into the sea is run. Flight. Run away. Run away from the situation. Sometimes it means take my life. Sometimes it just means get out of here. Don't, come, don't be in this relationship. It's hopeless. There's another option. And that is, fight! We're going to fight! That was the second group. The third group said, fawn. Let's just surrender. Become a slave. People pleasing. Let's go back to Egypt. It's fine. We're not going to be free. We're not going to be emancipated. Let's keep everybody happy. We, I will be a slave for the rest of my life. And Pare will smile and say, Good girl, good girl, good girl. I will be valedictorian because I'm a good girl. Even though to go into that position, it was Gehenim, but I'm going to be a good girl. And you know what? We understand it. You know, I have a close friend and he's, he had this condition for many, many years. He told me he was speaking to his therapist and he said, you know, he's always judging himself that he, he, he loves pleasing people and he loves validation. He'll do anything to get a compliment. And the therapist told him something very profound. The therapist says, you know, instead of judging yourself, respect that. Because that was your survival mechanism. When you were a little kid, you couldn't say, I don't need anybody's validation. I am on my own. No, a four-year-old is not on their own. They need every, they need mommy's validation. Yes, they need Tati's validation. They need their caregiver's attachment. They're not in a position to say, the whole world could jump over the Williamsburg Bridge. I am a man. So whatever I can do to get your validation, I did to survive. Respect that. That was your mechanism of survival. Don't judge it. Once you respect it and you can have compassion for it, now you can slowly graduate and say, you know what? Maybe now I don't need your validation. I could respect myself enough to be able to know that, but we have to appreciate this idea. I'm going back to Egypt. I'm surrendering. And then there's the fourth option. The fourth option is freeze. Basically, I say, I can't do anything. God, you run the world. I really can't do anything. All I can do is scream. And sometimes I can't even scream. It's basically complete passivity. I am incapable of making a move. All I could say is, Hashem, it's your world. You do it. And what Chazal are telling us here is that all these four responses are actually normal. In fact, sometimes they're positive. Sometimes they're even glorious. And we all have moments when we need to employ them. That's why the brain has it in its mechanisms. But as a vision for life, that's not the way to go. That's what I said. That's why it's in the brain. It's not a mistake. God make no junk. Huh? God don't make no junk. You know that one? Yeah. Somebody told me he was in a post, he would go to a post office and uh, Port Washington. 
And there was a black woman there working there for 25 years, always happy. Always in a good mood. You know, post offices are not always the happiest places. You know what I mean? That's why they invented Amazon Prime. The spirits from post offices, right? You know, getting the packages in lines and the post office is closing and the guy's in a bad mood. You know how it is. Post office, airports, you know, the, the, the banks, etc. But this woman was always happy and cheerful, always had something nice to say to somebody. So he asked her, well, how do you keep your mood? So she says, God makes no junk. And he made me. <laughs> God no make no junk and he made me. She had a poster. God no make no junk. Every, every one of those tools has a time and a space. But if that becomes my vision for life, my wife just said something uncomfortable. Fight, flight, fawn, freeze. You can't, you can't, it's a very paralyzing way of living. Because it's not present in a relationship. Yes, there's a moment I have to be a reptile. I have to survive. That's true. But then I have to be able to come out and say, okay, now I want to show up to life. But I don't. I shut it down. And it's like a certain, almost like a certain, Wire is disconnected, literally. That's what trauma is. Wires are disconnected. We could see it today in scans. It's it's unbelievable. Like it, it, it's, it, it's it's there's no seamless flow, and I had to do it because if the danger was persistent, for example, certain people too much pain they couldn't feel it. If you're abused as a child again and again and again, you know what happens? Your soul leaves your body. Here, abuse my body, and I'm not here. This is not fantasies. People become disembodied. My body becomes a shell of myself. You do whatever you want with my body. I'm not even here, so I don't feel the pain. So now what happens? I never come back. So I can't feel. I had to shut down my emotions. People who went through crazy stuff, they sometimes can't cry, they can't feel. Some of us came from such families. You couldn't feel, you couldn't express emotions. You're all looking at me. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? Because you're making believe like you don't. But you probably know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? Emotional constipation. You know, my mother once told me she grew up in the Soviet Union. She said, in the Soviet Union, if you shared an emotion that was genuine, you could end up in Siberia. You couldn't say what you feel. Everybody learned to lie a whole time. You do it for 70 years, you get good at it. <laughs> That was Stalin. And then you had the Hitler victims. That was a whole other Gehenim. So it's not about judging. It's about awareness. It's about awareness. Right? Today's, we live in a generation where children speak to their parents about how they parented them. Right? You didn't dare talk to your mother about how she parented you. You know that. means Today, your daughter calls you up and says, Mommy, the day when I graduated, and suddenly you start hearing stories, it's a mazel, she's not calling child services at you. One of, the, one of the worst things that parents do in those situations, they become defensive. And they start proving how their children are wrong, and you're ungrateful, and you know what I did for you, and what happens? Your child was trying to share their emotions to work it through and create a deeper relationship. When I become defensive, all they say is there's nobody to talk to and we cut, the relationship gets cut off. It doesn't mean they're right or wrong. It means I don't have to be defensive 
because I could empathize. I don't even have to agree with you, but it means I could listen and really understand where you're coming from. Really appreciate that this is what you're feeling. It's not a threat, but if it's a threat for me, I have to fight back. It's my only way of surviving. So these are the four groups. Comes Moshe, comes Hashem to Moshe, and he says, What's this? There's a fifth approach. What's the fifth approach? Move. What's, what's that supposed to be? Move, but there's a sea. Don't worry, we'll split it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Could have said that in the beginning. <laughs> it's really a very deep, it's not so simple. The fifth approach could be scarier than most, but that's the only approach. It's the approach of healing. The fifth approach says, you're forgetting one thing. You didn't leave Egypt on your own. You didn't end up in this situation on your own. You were sent on a mission. Shem took you to Mitzrayim, and he said, leave Mitzrayim and go to Har Sinai. You go. You move forward. Kadima. Viso, you see that mountain? That's your destination. I created you. I put you in Egypt. I took you out of Egypt. And I gave you a mission. And I empowered you with all the tools that you need to fulfill your mission. You're trying to figure out the solution to all the problems from the eye that is part of a vi- that is a victim of these problems. I'm using my instruments of trauma to face my trauma. But you have to understand, you're an ambassador of Hashem in this world. And therefore, you are not enslaved to any of these four responses. You can choose these responses when they're necessary and then choose to move forward knowing that essentially you're not broken. Your brokenness didn't touch your core. You're my shluyach. You're my messenger. Even the difficult places you went to, you weren't on your own. You were my ambassador and therefore your inner core is absolutely infinite, wholesome, sacred and not wounded and not broken. Realize that you have a mission. You're empowered and you have the resources it takes to fulfill your mission and you know what you're going to see? The sea will split. What does it mean the sea will split? What is under the sea? What is beneath the sea? What is under the sea is the koya chapoyel benifo, the divine core that no trauma, no abuse, no pain in the world can destroy. It may be covered over by water. Tubu v'yamsuf. I may say, this is my nature. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn. I call it my nature. But nature just means tubu. There's something inside. Expose it. Split your sea. It's scary to split my sea. (laughs) It's very scary. What's inside of me? But when I split my sea, when I have the courage to open myself up to everything, I will find the internal, sacred, divine, infinite power that may have gone through all these four responses, but is not defined by any of them. And therefore, Viktor Frankl said, between stimuli and reaction, between stimuli and response, there's an empty space. And in that tiny empty space is where all human growth and freedom lives. 
Yes, you said something to me in the classroom, in the house, in my workplace. Yes, you triggered me. Yes, I want to punch you in the face or scream or run or freeze or fawn. But you know what? Right before that reaction is a little tiny space. That's the space where the soul lives. Kriyas Yamsov, can you open up that space? Can you observe that space? And from that space I can observe what's happening to me. And I can realize that my inner core remains a conscious observer of reality without being a victim of that reality because God no make no junk. So the God inside of me ain't no junk. In simple English. And even the junk I may have endured. But that I is not made of junk. It's made of divinity. It's made of divine light. So in practical terms it means there's a situation in life. Yes, a part of me says suicide, just run away, just just give up. Maybe depression. Another part of me, disassociation, disconnect. Another part of me says just fight, fight. A lot of anger, a lot of anger. Negative energy, confrontation. I'm living with anger, which is a war. Competitiveness, jealousy, just negative energy, machloikas, gossip, slander, whatever it looks like in my life. But I'm busy fighting, 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 fighting. Survival. Another approach is just, just surrender. Just, just give up. You know what? Your, your expectations are too high. Life is dysfunctional. Just become part of this dysfunction and smile. Yeah, 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 it's perfect. Just smile. Yeah, we know it's dysfunctional. We know it's toxic. You know what? So be it. You'll be a slave for a few. You're fine. You you know what I'm talking about? We all know what I'm talking about, right? And then there's the then then there's the one in some ways it's like you know you just pick up your hands and say, I I can't do anything. I just remain I remain frozen, I just remain passive, and I blame it all on God. (laughs) The common denominator in all of them is I don't know who I really am. There's a sense of yeush, despair. The spirit comes in different ways. I run away. I fight. But when I, I'm fighting my whole life, my enemy is defining me. Don't I realize? Whenever you're involved in a war, you're also part of the casualty. Because I'm, 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 I'm entangled in negativity. There's no peace. And then when I surrender, it's also the spear. I don't have what it takes. And even when I say, God, you take care of me, it's beautiful. But essentially it means, I got nothing. I can just be passive. The passage says, God will bless you in what you do. You're a co-partner in healing the world. You don't have to freeze. I'm not passive. So, recognize the fact that even if all the voices are telling you you're stuck, Trust that inner divine voice that says, you're not a mistake. You're not stuck. You were put here. Travel. Look at your destination. Ask yourself, what do you really want in your life? What I really want in my life is I want to connect. I want to bond. I want to be a light unto the world. I want to be a light unto myself. I want to be a light unto my loved ones. I want to go to Maimed Har Sinai and absorb God's wisdom and will call the third and light up the world. I want to. Travel there. And you know what will happen? That Yamsuf will split. And you'll discover your Kaya Chapayal Benifal. Yes, the Mitzrim will still scream and all the voices will be there. V so. 
Now, the soul is not easy because I'm trying to travel, but I can't. I'm, I'm angry. Ah, ah. Okay, Hindi like that. We spoke about fireworks, right? Fireworks. I implode. I can't travel. Right? All the voices in me are, 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 the fire alarm went off. I get it. We get it. Compassion. Empathy. But then say, there's that inner core that was never damaged. And it never shut down. And it's capable of taking the next step towards redemption. Taking the next step towards Harsina. Whatever that means. It may mean saying something loving. It may mean that even though the whole system in me wants to shut down and run away from this relationship, I'm going to stay connected and I'm going to say something that will bring me closer to my heart, Sinai, whatever that looks like. A gesture, a smile, positive words, positive connection, opening up about being authentic without the need of confronting, hurting, running, freezing, fawn, fight, flight, whatever. All the four F's. So the four groups were responding to danger. They were in Gullahs for 210 years. Yes, that's called trauma with a capital T. And Hashem said, and now I'm going to teach you about redemption. So Kriyas Yamsov wasn't a miracle in vain. It was the ability to be able to understand what it means to be a free person. That every day I have to have the courage to split the sea. And when the sea becomes dry land, it means that what used to be completely undercover is now exposed. We spoke that what does it mean to look at the yam? You see the achdus, you see the oneness. But we live in dry land. But if that world of the fish is now open, it means that in dry land, in our conscious self, we can live in that reality. On another level, it means under the water you have the concealment of the divine energy. It's exposed. But here there's two stages. One is you walk through the yamsuf, it's still muddy. It's still a lot of water. And one is it's completely dry. That represent two stages in human development. One stage in human development is I flux, I go back and forth. I'm on dry land, there's a moment where your soul opens up, Kriyas Yamsuf, and you want to walk through it, but it's still muddy. So you trip in the water, you slip in the water, which means I go back and forth. You know, we have moments of connection. We have moments of deep love and relationship. But then the lion walks into the room and I run right out of there. It's almost like PTSD. Like, Dayenu. Dayenu for the awareness that I could see what's inside the Yamsuf. But here, it was Koralonuas Hayam Veviranu Besoichai Becherava. There's the ability of Kriyas Yamsuf and it becomes dry, which means the inner world of the sea becomes as natural and organic and holistic as dry land. I walk through it with a freedom, with an ease. It's not that it splits open and it goes back. If I could use the word, it dilates, but not fully. Closes, opens, closes, opens. I'm in the water, I'm out of the water, I'm in the water, I'm out of the water. It's almost like the curtain opens and then it shuts on me. And I'm like, oh, here we go again. Which is also dayenu. It's also dayenu. That awareness itself is powerful. No small thing. That's step one. Step two is, 
not just subjugation, but transformation, not just eskafi, but eshapcha, to really, really be able to hold on to that place of Kriyas Yamsov and walk through it in dry land, meaning it could become part of my natural reality, just like I'm walking on dry land, I'm walking in the sea. I become a sea creature, I could live with that oneness. I could live with the Kamayim Le'yom Like the fish, I don't have to be visible, not because I don't have an ego, but because my ego is an extension of infinity, so I don't have to create a false ego. The fish is confident, it just doesn't have to be visible to be confident. It doesn't need the ego to be confident, it's in the water. That's what Rabbi Akiva compared to the Jewish people, to the fish in water. That's what he was trying to explain. And then we have the idea that under the water you have a whole world, even though it's invisible. But what if it becomes visible? So I have now a connection with that part of me that was always invisible. That core goodness that is never ever destroyed. And which allows me always to take a step forward to connection, even when the four voices are going crazy. And that's why Chazal say they split up into four groups. It wasn't one group. It's literally four different reactions of the brain. What happens in neuroscience happens on a collective level in Klal Yisrael. And then Moshe says, I get it. (laughs) I get it. And you know what? Each reaction has a time and a place. There's times you have to run away, yeah. Yeah. There's times we have to run away. I can't stay in a relationship, yeah? Not every relationship do you have to stay in. You can't. There's times where I have to compromise, yeah? We all know that. We all know that the lesser of two evils, right? Sometimes people get angry at their child's school. They'll take the child out of school in the middle of the year because they're not going to tolerate what's happening. Sometimes it's the right decision. That child should not go for another day to this school where they're being hurt. But a person always has to ask themselves, is it just my anger? Or maybe this is the right thing for the child. Because sometimes taking a person out of their social environment where there's a certain safety, even though I don't like it, but if this is where the person is safe and this is going to contribute to their growth, I have to realize that sometimes compromise is not bad. I can't always say, I'm authentic and it's my way or the highway. Sometimes that itself is brokenness. Yes, Good relationships is an element of compromise. Not from weakness, from strength. Seeing your perspective. Understanding things are not perfect. Understanding this is the best option. There's a time for it. There's a time to be socially appropriate. I have to explain this to women. To be socially appropriate with the proper etiquette, even though you think everybody is very uptight. Okay, you'll go home in an hour and chill out. But if this becomes my lifestyle, it's too hard. (laughs) At least I can't do it for too long. And then this freeze, there's moments where we we, we turn to Hashem and we say, there's nothing I can do. Yes, there's nothing. There are such moments in life. There's moments in life where all I could turn to heaven and say, this is is above my pay grade. (laughs) There are such moments in life. And every day we daven because we know we need heaven's grace. But if it becomes a philosophy of life, I'm incapable of anything. I'm inept. I just freeze. God, you run the world. No, he created you as his ambassador in this world. You're not as small as you think. In your eyes you may be small, but you're a leader of the Jewish people. 
so now we understand why they compared Shaduchim to Kriyas Yamsov. <laughs> I think we can all understand the most, uh, the most adequate, the most aesthetical, the profoundest and most elegant way of describing a worked out marriage is literally Kriyas Yamsov. Because the greatest contradiction, what undermines most relationships, is not that people are incompatible with each other. What undermi- That could undermine a relationship, that people are just really not compatible. But what really undermines most relationships is the trauma that people live with and that causes them to drift away from their partner without having the tools and the safety and the support to be able to understand what is happening inside of themselves rather than blaming their spouse. Fortunate is the couple who can look at each other and feel the safety of saying, what you just said was very hard for me because of X, Y, Z. And the other person, instead of pouncing on them, says, yeah, I always know you were a sick person. Says, wow, that's painful. That's so painful. I'm sorry. And how can I be here for you? When people can do that with each other, so then our weakest points become our strongest points. The weakest link in the relationship becomes the strongest link in the relationship. You know, I always say, ideally, this is what a first date should look like. I don't know if you should practice this with all of your children, but ideally, this is what a first date should look like. Don't talk about family, and don't talk about which food you like, and don't talk about what you did for the summer, you're doing for the summer, we're a seminary, yeshiva. We'll keep that for after you retire. You'll find that about his family, her family. Anyway, you'll anyway find out about the Sheva Brachas, everything. The real first question should be, you walk into the car, he looks at her and he says, okay, this is my trauma. Now tell me what's your trauma. <laughs> and now we can get engaged, or not. Now I'm saying this somewhat humorously, but not completely. Because really that's exactly what's going to have to happen for this marriage to be worked out. Knowing a little more about his mother and grandmother and great-grandmother, favosnisht. Knowing if she does good chalupzas, or you don't want to taste her chalupzas, sheyiyeh. You're right. I know that, I know that. That's why I'm saying it humorously, because if we would all at a first date know our traumas, right? It would, it would be like almost when I'm four years old, I should know my trauma, right? Then I wouldn't have been four. But this is what I'm really saying. What do we get to know by dates? What Chazal are saying is, don't think that after a week or two weeks or three weeks, or even if you're Mahadim and I'm and you're doing six months, or you're really Mahadim and you'll give me nine months, don't think you're going to get to know everything about the other person. It's impossible. They don't know anything about them. <laughs> and even when you do know, right, till, but what you want to know is one thing. Is this a person with whom you're going to be able to go to Kriyas Yamsov? That's the key. The challenge of the marriage is not we're not going to be compatible with each other because our personalities. That can happen. You have to appreciate each other. Attraction, emotional, physical, intellectual. In other words, you appreciate the person, their values, their midas toivas, their personality, etc. Obviously. But the key, kashim, what makes it challenging is the kriyas yamsuf. The ability to remove the facades to remove the layers, to remove what we call today the protectors, the managers, the firefighters, the shells, the husks. 
Kriyas Yamsov, where we'll be able to support each other in doing Kriyas Yamsov and splitting open a sea that was covering up reality for many, many years and then have the courage to see what is under there and the real courage to see what is really under everything. And that's the Kaya Chapayel Benifal, the divine oneness, the Ein Soif that is at the core of every self and is indestructible. Will be, we be able to support each other in the endeavor of Kriyas Yamsov? Because when those things start flaring up, that's going to be the parameter if we're going to be able not only to survive and thrive or chas v'shalom, disintegrate and fall apart. So now we could appreciate why Chazal used this metaphor. We can appreciate the Dayenu of going through the Yamsuf in complete dry land because of the two paradigms of how a person relates to their essence, muddy or not muddy. We could finally appreciate why this was so necessary after Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, why we mention it every day. Because really the Avoida every day is to remember that we're capable of this type of Kriyas Yamsuf. We're capable of hafach yamli abasha, that which usually is see, should become part of my conscious self and doesn't have to remain in my subconscious super self beneath the water. And we understand finally why the responses were four different reactions being stuck between a rock and a hardball. And the ultimate response which saved the day was speak to the Jewish people and empower them that they have the ability to take a step forward in the direction of connection, oneness, harsinai, in the march from Mitzrayim to redemptive consciousness. I want to wish everybody a wonderful week. Yeah. Excellent. That's the U-turn. The U-turn is, you're going back to your own place. You're going back to your own source. You're not running away. You're going back to where you came from. Okay, next week I'm away. I'm in Texas, so next week there's no class. Okay? Please tell your friends or relatives who come here. The next Tuesday we will resume. So next Tuesday there's no class. The one afterwards there is. Have a wonderful and beautiful week. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.